I've had quite a few comments about the fact that I'm not in shorts or in tracksuit pants. Um, please, Father, let that not be a distraction. Um, I love trying to find what the Holy Spirit is doing. I love to try and figure out where He's leading. And the Holy Spirit is equated to a beautiful, mighty river. And so often we try and create the river or generate the river, but instead we should just jump into it. And I want to encourage every single one of us tonight just to jump in the river and let the Holy Spirit do what He's going to do. Let's pray. Thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for being here with us tonight. Father, we pray that you would touch our hearts and minds. We yield ourselves fully to you. Have your way and do what you want to do in this place tonight. We honor you. We exalt you. We love you. And we give you thanks. Amen. I was standing in worship and to Lee Delarue and to Merv, thank you so, for the way you led worship was so beautiful, thank you so much. But I'm standing here, and I look to my left, and I see two brothers standing shoulder to shoulder, worshiping Jesus. Sometimes we're so caught up in the details that we forget to take time. Just appreciate what God's done. I, I couldn't imagine as parents what it must be like to see your two sons in the front going wild for Jesus. Hey, oh, his faithfulness, his goodness. So many times we get caught up in the details, you know, God this and God that, God, where they're wandering, they're straying, they're all over the, but look how faithful God is. So good to have you back. So amazing to see the work that God's doing in Ben's life and in so many young people's lives. In worship, I felt the Holy Spirit singing inside of me, and he kept saying, Behold the Lamb! Behold the Lamb! Behold the Lamb! And I felt that God is raising a generation of John the Baptists, and all that they're going to do is shout out, Behold the Lamb! They're not interested in all these puffing up theologies and all these systems and all in building these man-made things. Every area that we lack, we bring in a structure, a system, a something, and there's a generation rising up where all they're going to say is, behold the Lamb, because there's nothing more you need than to cast your eyes on Jesus and say, behold. And maybe a generation is rising up in our midst, in the front row of our church, that are going to lead the church into a place of beholding again. And maybe us as fathers or forerunners or ones that have gone before need to be encouraged to return to that place. There's so many words, there's so many teachings, there's so many things, but what about beholding? My good friend, as close to a man crush as a godly man crush can be, he knows who he is. Mr. Ian Yonker.
from Milneton, came up to me in worship, and he says he feels like tonight God is going to shift some things from the perishable to the imperishable, from the temporary to the lasting, from the here and now to the eternal. And I pray that God actually does that within us. Last week, Lee preached a phenomenal sermon. I was in a calm this week, and Michaela led. Michaela led, I would say, perfectly. There's a calling of God in your life, Michaela. You resonate Jesus. It's the most beautiful thing. I think you're going to be one of those forerunners that just says, behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. And we're in the calm talking about Lee's sermon and what Lee had preached and taught about hearing from God, about praying. And what I love about Lee is the level of conviction and commitment that if Lee says something, guaranteed he's been living it out for years before he utters a word. There's such authenticity and integrity in, in him and his beautiful wife. And you said something, Margot, in, in, in the prayer time, and I wrote it down because I don't think you, you, you quite, it, it impacted me as much as it impacted you. And you said, we will tell of your goodness to the next generation. And may that be our story. May that be who we are to continually retell of his goodness from generation to generation to generation. I look at Nikki and Tanya, look at their, their generation. I look at the little kids sitting there. The generation to generation will know of his goodness, not just intellectually, but experientially. They'll experience the goodness of God in ways that theology can't explain, but it's undeniable. Unexplainable, yet undeniable. And that's what Christianity is meant to be. But we've made it some historical, factual document where every T's got to be crossed and I's got to be dotted. But Paul looks and he says, the mystery of the ages, Christ in me, the hope of glory. And maybe it's time for us to wander into the mystery. Maybe it's time for us to wander into the unknown and not need formulas and facts to govern and dictate everything we're experiencing, but maybe throwing ourselves into the arms of loving Father and just go, I want the mystery of who you are because my mind can't comprehend. My heart cannot conceive. Your ways are so much higher than mine. Behold the Lamb. Lee stood up here last week and he spoke about frequency and he held up the radio and he says God is continually sending messages. God is speaking at all times and all ways. In the word of God, it says creation itself declares his glory. The mountains, the oceans, the sky, the sunset is all telling us of his glory, his goodness and his existence. We can't escape this conversation. It's a conversation that's been taking place since the beginning of the time. And he says to us, Lee, last week, the problem is, is that most of us have treated it like a monologue. Where we're just going, God, I need this. God, I need that. Help me with it. And he's wanting to engage in a divine dialogue where a father is singing love, where a father is speaking affirmations, where a father is reaffirming and confirming everything you are in him. And my heart tonight is that we would begin to engage in a divine dialogue with God. You know, I look at the best example of this, or one of the best examples. We see Jesus at the Last Supper. 
Now we have to realize that this, these events, these times and, and days had been prophesied for hundreds and thousands of years and now we're living and we're existing in the penultimate days of Jesus' time on earth. And all the disciples and Jesus are seated at the table. Picture that. He's sitting there and he's ministering to all of them. They all know the time is coming. The tension's in the air. There's anticipation and the stirring in their spirit. Everything is built up for this moment. And here they are, Jesus. What's the next move? And Jesus begins to break the bread. And he says, truly, truly, one of you will betray me. The disciples sitting at this moment start to panic what is he saying? Who's he talking about? They're talking back and forth to each other, discussing this. What's he saying? And Peter, being Peter, always makes a plan. Peter leans over and he says, John, would you ask Jesus who it is? And John looks up and says, Jesus, who are you talking about? And Jesus speaks down to John, and he says, it is the one whom I give the bread. Here we have 12 men of God that have moved mightily, 12 men that have followed Jesus every single day for the past couple of years. They know his voice. They know everything about him. They've studied him. They've been consumed by him. And yet in this moment of mystery, this moment of tension, 11 of the 12 are confounded because 11 of the 12, they have the right frequency. They understand his voice. They know his voice. But only one had the right proximity. And maybe some of us here tonight know his voice. We've been doing this for a long time. Our antenna, our frequency is tuned in. But maybe it's proximity, closeness. See, when the others wanted to know what Jesus was saying, they spoke to the one that rested his head upon the chest of Jesus. When the others wanted to know the secrets of Jesus and the things he was whispering, they spoke to the beloved one, the disciple whom Jesus loved, because there is something proximity can do that nothing else can do. John was not receiving his revelation from information. John was receiving his revelation from position. Would we become a people that lean once again upon the bosom of Jesus? Would we pursue his presence in such a way that nothing else matters? So while resting upon his chest, Jesus whispers, and John is the only one who hears. I believe that Jesus is wanting to call us to a place of forgetting about what's going on and finding the one thing, the one thing that truly matters. John found this thing, and it set him apart from everyone else. In Exodus 33, Wasn't that funny, Miles? 
In Exodus 33, we encounter the story of Moses. I don't know if there were many men as faithful as Moses was. You're like a Moses, Kim. But you are. Moses got beaten up, bruised. Everyone was against him at times. No one understood him. He, he, he gave his all, and yet people walked all over him. And there's, something, or there's some leadership on you, Kim. And it comes through bumps and bruises and scars and bumps. But one day you're going to stand face to face, and he's going to look at you and well done, my good and faithful servant. So we find Moses here in Exodus 33. He's now brought God's people out of Egypt. He's brought the Israelites out. He's come through the Red Sea. He's now wandered into the wilderness, which is largely just a desert. And the people start turning on him. The people start saying, is this where you've led us just to die? He stood before Pharaoh, which would have been the, there's no leader today equivalent to what Pharaoh would have been in that time. He's faced every challenge, every obstacle. He'd beaten every adversity. He'd rise to every occasion, and he finds himself in this place. And God is saying, Moses, there's more for you. Lead my people into the promised land. Take them further. And Moses is looking ahead of him, and he's seeing armies and giants and nations he's going to have to come up against. And Moses doesn't. He has no other request. Moses doesn't ask him, hey, will you help me in the battles? Moses doesn't ask him, will you make my life easier? Will you take the enemy away? Will you make me more popular? My own people are turning on me. Moses doesn't ask for anything. He says one thing and one thing only. And I'm paraphrasing now, but he says, I will go wherever your presence goes. Just like John, Moses was consumed by one thing. And it didn't matter where the presence led him. He would stand before Pharaoh. He would stand before nations. He would stand alone as long as God's presence was with him. Nothing else mattered. How many of us have these challenges in life, these obstacles, these things we face? God, will you help me? Will you do this? Will you do it? Yeah, Moses says, if your presence is there, I'll go there. It doesn't matter what it looks like. Lance and Sue, look at you. If your presence is there, I'll go doesn't matter the cost. If your presence is there, I'll go. I'll go again and again and again. It doesn't matter. As long as your presence is there, that's all I want. Would we be willing to become people so consumed by his presence that we'll go into the pit of hell if necessary just because he's there? Moses understood this. Talking about powerful men Mightily used men of God. Every single one of them had one thing in common. We look at Joseph, we look at Moses, we look at all the mighty men, Joshua. All of them. It wasn't about their ability. It wasn't about their authority. It wasn't about what they could do or couldn't do. These were men consumed by one thing. I can think of no better example than the King David. King David says this. In Psalm 27 verse 4. One thing I ask. We've read this so many times, but I'm begging you in this moment. 
Give me fresh ears. Give the Holy Spirit a fresh heart. One thing, not two things, not one of many. He says one thing because nothing else matters. There's no second thing. There's nothing to follow. He says one thing I ask of the Lord. This is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. One thing. Can we become a people of one thing? And can we follow that one thing? Wherever it leads, whoever it takes us to, one thing. This is David, the ruler of Israel, the mightiest nation in the world. He had everything going on. He had blessing. He had prosperity. He had favor. He had everything you could possibly want and need. And he says, all of it means nothing. All of it means nothing. I want one thing. And we see this heart of David so beautifully contrasted when it comes to, to the heart of Saul. Saul was a king, the king before David. What we sometimes forget is Saul was chosen by God. Saul was anointed. Saul was favored. Saul was blessed. Saul was incredibly successful. But there came a time when Saul's heart began to turn and no longer followed the presence. It forgot the one thing and started going after many things. And the Word of God says that Saul disobeys God, that he sins. And Samuel comes to confront him. The prophet Samuel comes to confront Saul. And Saul responds and says, I have sinned. He admits it, hand up, I have sinned. But please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord with you. Samuel comes to Saul and says, you've sinned. And Saul says, yes, I'm guilty. But he wasn't looking for forgiveness. He wasn't looking for mercy. He wasn't even looking for God's presence. Saul's soul desire, the one thing he wanted, he says, honor me before the people. We saw the very heart of Saul corrupted and how many things crept in to where the one thing was supposed to be. And he gets caught out in sin. He says, take it all. But leave me my power, my popularity. Leave me with my people. When David sins, we see a very different response. In Psalm 51, David sins and Nathan comes to him and David shouts out, Do not cast me from your presence or take your spirit from me. They're both caught in the place of sinning. Saul says, I want everything else. David says, I want the one thing. Take everything else. Saul begged and pleaded, please, don't take my popularity. Don't take my power. Don't take my reputation. Don't take the opinion of man, please. David says, have it all. Have it all. I don't need power. I don't need wealth. I need nothing. You take it all, all I want. Please, God, don't take your presence from me. David was prepared to lose it all because he... He knew the one thing that truly mattered. One of the best examples in the whole Bible, we find Jesus visiting two sisters in their house in Bethany, Martha and Mary. And Jesus at this stage was known as the Messiah. He was performing miracles left, right, and center. It would be like Andrew Selly on steroids coming to your house. You're going to put your best foot forward. Kids, behave. Elaine, do the dishes. 
My dog call us outside. But I want to read this quick. In Luke 10, verse 38 to 42. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Listen to what he said. Next. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me with all the work to do by myself? Tell her to help me. And Jesus responds, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. I've heard so many people teach about this. I've heard so many preachers preach about this. And I've heard so many people say, yes, but without Martha's, nothing gets done. If we're all just Mary's, we're going to sit around. But that's not what Jesus says. I'm sorry. I've heard it. And I know we wanted to make it a noble thing that Martha was doing. And her intentions were probably good. But that's not what he says. He says, Martha, you're distracted. Martha, you're running around doing pointless, aimless things. Martha, you've missed the point. The point is standing right before you, in front of you, but you're missing me. Mary has found what? The one thing worth being concerned about, and it shall not be taken from her. And maybe today there are many Marthas in you. And God is saying, what you're doing is good and your intentions are great, but there's only one thing that I've called you to, and that is my presence. The final story I want to leave you with today is the ultimate example of desiring only one thing. It was the feast of Passover. Jerusalem is packed. Everyone from far and wide has come. It's hustling. It's bustling. Everyone is there. Things are happening. It's, there's chaos, a pandemonium. You've shoulder to shoulder bumping into people in the streets. And Mary and Joseph decide Jesus has turned 12. It's time for us to take him to the feast, to the great festival. It's time for us to take him to Jerusalem to be a part of this and experience this. So they bring him. And somewhere along the line, Jesus gets lost. And Mary and Joseph run around everywhere, searching for Jesus, looking for him, worried, distressed, not knowing what to do. For those of us that have children, you, you, you lose your child in a shopping mall for five minutes. It feels like your world is ending. It says that they looked for him for three days. And eventually, they found him. They found the 12-year-old Jesus in the temple. And Jesus responds and says, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house and about my father's business? Another translation puts it this way. Jesus said to them, Why would you need to search for me? Didn't you know that it was necessary 
for me to be in my father's house, consumed with him. Jesus himself was consumed with his father. Jesus himself said, why did you look for me? Didn't you know where to find me? Didn't you know what I'm about? Didn't you know what's important in my life? Didn't you know that I prioritize his presence above all else? That my life is consumed by one thing? Didn't you know where to find me? Did you not know that my entire life, 12-year-old Jesus, was about one thing? Imagine people come looking for Luke. Where's Luke? We all know where Luke's going to be. Imagine people come looking for Margs. Where's Margs? We know where Margs is going to be because we know her heart and we know the thing that consumes her from within. The presence of God. May we be a people that are consumed by our Father's house, by our Father's business, and with him. Jesus himself, his entire life was about this one thing. I'm going to ask Merv and the band to come up. I want to read one more scripture. We see John, the beloved disciple, the disciple who Jesus loved. What I love about John is that every single gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they give you different angles in the same events, but only one angle was the angle of the one leaning. Everyone else gave the facts and the figures, but the one who leant with his head on Jesus knew him in a way that no one else did. And John, in his later years, was sent into persecution onto an island all by himself. And there, the Holy Spirit began to speak to him in ways he'd never spoken to anyone else. And John began to write what is arguably one of the greatest books in the Bible, the Revelation of Christ. Revelation is not the revelation of end times. Revelation is the revelation of Christ in all things, in all ways, in all seasons, at all times, that He is the epicenter of creation itself, that the universe hangs upon Jesus. And John writes this. He describes the throne room. And he says in the center was the throne. Please, you know what you can do? Close your eyes and picture this. Close your eyes and picture this. John says, day and night, day and night without ceasing, without stopping, day and night they cry out. All of heaven, all of creation cries out. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. They praised Him and worshipped Him for eternity because every time they looked upon Him, they saw more beauty. They saw greater beauty. They saw an aspect to God they hadn't seen before. And so for eternity, they were seeing new parts of Him, new beauty, new man. 
majesty. And they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John says that they fall down before him who sits on the throne and they worship him who loves, who lives. They worship him, they fall down before him and worship him forever and ever and ever. There is a conversation that has been taking place from the beginning of eternity and it will never end. And that conversation is worthy are you, O Lord our God to receive glory and honor and power for all eternity. All of creation is consumed by one thing, Him who sits on the throne. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, can we as a people return to the place of being consumed by one thing and not distracted by many? Can we as people fall before His throne and for eternity cry out, Worthy are you, worthy are you, O Lord our God, worthy to receive glory and honor and power. We find John the Beloved leaning on the chest of Jesus. Leaning so closely on his chest that only John can hear the secret whispers of Jesus. And only John can feel the beating of his heart. Would you lean into the arms of Jesus? Would you come closer than you've ever been before? So he can tell you his secrets. So you can hear his heart so that you can know him in ways that no one else knows. It's not about information. It's about position. David had everything. Everything a man could want. Everything a man could desire. But it meant nothing. He wanted only one thing because he had his eyes on eternity. David had his eyes on the one seated on the throne and in comparison to him, nothing else mattered. He knew only one thing that truly mattered. It didn't matter to Moses where he had to go or what he had to face. The only thing he wanted was the presence of God to go with him. Would we be a people that rise up once again? and say, it doesn't matter what is before me, it is what is inside of me that matters. It doesn't matter what I have to face, it is the face that I gaze upon that matters. It doesn't matter the voice of accusation, the voice of the one calling me is far louder, and that is the voice that defines me, that says, I am your Father, and you are my beloved. Martha thought she had it all figured out, but it was Mary who had found the one thing and Mary was prepared to lay everything else aside just to sit at the feet of the one thing the one thing that truly mattered and Jesus says 
did you not know that I must be in my father's house and about my father's business? Did you not know that I am consumed with one thing? And my plea, my petition to all of us, I'm, I, I'm a front of the Moses that we would return 